to the second episode of Reproducibility. I'm Sophia Cuvet and I'm here with Sam Parsons and Amy Auburn. Hello. Um, hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, the topic for this week is um, examining analytic flexibility and the paper we're looking at is the false positive psychology paper. Yep, I'm just checking that the mic is on after last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, well, we're, we're all set now, we're geared up. <laughs> um, right, so I think before we properly get into this paper, we should probably define what a false positive is. Yeah, I guess, I guess you know, this, this paper, it, was, it kind of set the scene for loads of what is, has happened in the reproducibility crisis, um, both by kind of first really looking into what false positives are, why they're bad, you know, how they come come about and and also introducing a lot of other terms that we now use. And, a, and it's a really engaging paper, so it's great that we're covering this um, in our in our second week. Um, it's described so much as the paper that got people interested or we describe it as like post false positive psychology. <laughs> and pre, <laughs> like yeah. Like this is what started people on the and I think we're too young to, to really realize the amount of waves this this paper kind of made at, at the time it was published. You know, this was, yeah, published before I started university. <laughs> um, but the um, my collaborator here at Oxford, he always says that this paper got published kind of at the very end of his PhD. And I think he was like, this, this caused so many people who read it and actually wanted to engage with it to really question what they were doing and, and may, I guess put those people that are now leading the reproducibility movement on the, the paths that they're on. So, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, because, because it just showed that um, by doing things that everyone was or is to some extent doing, um, you could get absolutely ridiculous results in mm. the uh, quotation marks. <laughs> I genuinely believe this is probably the first time that people have been told, or some people will have been told, what a false positive actually is. So I think the assumption is, my p-value is less than 0.05, therefore I have meaning. And, mm. and my I have the truth! But yeah, the, the p-value is true small! Now. Like, there's, there's no, maybe this is wrong. And I think even just having a paper that says, no, this, this is the case. Well, so and they and they give they give an amazing explanation that they don't mm. kind of take another paper and say, oh look, and we we analyzed the data and they were wrong or this you know somehow somebody did something um, wrong in the past. They they just show it in this study and it it just makes such intuitive sense and it's mm. very engaging and it doesn't judge other people. So I think it allows people to really engage with it. The same with the paper where. I always forget the name of the people who did it, but we'll put it in the show notes where they scanned the the dead fish and they found that oh, yeah. it like reacted oh, to pictures. Salmon. Yeah, the yeah. dead salmon. But maybe let's explain then what a false positive is. <laughs> um, anybody have a good explanation? Well, I mean, a false positive is when you incorrectly reject the non-hypothesis. Yeah. So it's claiming that an effect is there, even though the effect isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like on that, that classic slide where like one of them is like 
with the oh yeah the, the guy that that where the doctor's like you're pregnant and, and the pregnant woman uh, yeah like, you're not pregnant yeah yeah and the first is yes. the false positive that's how I remember <laughs> it so we're talking about pregnant men this week yeah <laughs> well that, that's I I think that we often think about um, that being kind of inherently problematic in many different ways. And I think in the introduction, the paper really details why false positives are especially bad. So they, I think I found three main things. So firstly, they say that false positives are particularly persistent. They then say that false positives waste resources. They inspire investment in fruitless research programs and can lead to ineffective policy changes. And a field known for publishing false positives risks losing its credibility. That's not not great. (laughs) (laughs) Although if a field is based on just type 1 errors, then it probably should lose some of its credibility at some point. Uh, Define type 1 error. Type one errors and false positives. Yay! Just defining things. I honestly thought I was going to get that horribly wrong for a second. It's like (laughs) trying to catch me out with a trick question. Yeah, it's just it's just loads of (laughs) loads of those uh, terminology that we don't just want to pepper our podcast with without um, definitions. But yeah, I think I think it is. But we've seen this time and time again. Is that they once results are out there they get a life of their own and people mm-hmm. start investing in it in the way that you know whole master's projects and phds and funding money and time and you know originality and investment are are put into something that doesn't even exist um and even if, they, if this is sure this effect is sort of shown not to exist by you know because it's not replicated at all um or if it gets attracted for any kind of other reason, even if it gets attracted, um, it doesn't die, right? Yeah. You get all of these undead thing papers that um, are still cited massively, um, even after they've been retracted. Well, and that, well that, that, that is already considering that it's so hard to get anything retracted in the first place. Mm. So as soon as something is out there, or as they say, it's super hard. Well, how how much how much do we still it. talk about power posing? You yeah. know, like naturally there is there is still like some effects, and I do not want to go into this debate. But I listen to the radio a lot, and the amount of people who go on and like kind of say like, oh yeah, and I power posed before my talks, and it made me feel really good. I'm like very you know high quality British journalism and radio stations, and you're just there going like, no, don't don't do it. But you know they they do develop develop lives so um it's kind of important that we don't have them in the first place um and they they were they well, introduced do you have something else to say well no like something like sort of we especially don't want to have them if we're if it looks like the entire enterprise of what <laughs> is geared towards getting them yeah right so i think like of course you're going to have to get have have some amount of false positives, which is why we accept, right, it's, well, right, the p-value is um, is meant to be like, well, 5%, mm. like a 5% false yeah, positive so rate, right? So like, we do accept that overall we might get false positives, but we, we just don't accept it. Like we shouldn't accept um, that rate to be as high as they... Uh, 61% or yeah, something. Yeah, like um, 60, 60.7%, I think they... Um, something they in the paper. Cite as a, yeah. In, yeah. As a result of their simulations, and that's probably quite conservative as well. Or you 
Well, they, they do mention that kind of further on. I think what working working day to day, so I, I do research, kind of trying to visualize the garden of walking paths or researcher degrees of freedom. Um, and this paper was the first people who kind of coined that phrase. Um, and they, they kind of said that that's the main culprit causing this rise. We should probably also talk about researcher degrees of freedom. Yeah. Do you so want to... Oh, I, I, um, so researchers are free to freedom are kind of all the decisions that you make while you're collecting your data or collecting and analyzing um, and if things like what sort of outliers do I exclude do I do a transformation for normality how do I define my x and y variables um, do I keep on collecting data if I decide to use optional stopping? What sort of control variables do I include in what sort of combination? Um, and so once we make all these decisions, and I think I talked about this in the last episode, looking back, it's, it always makes complete sense why we went down this one analytical path. But actually, at the very beginning, there were maybe hundreds or thousands or millions of possible analytical paths which could have gone down. Um, and so without making all of these decisions at the very, very beginning before we um, do all of our analyses, yeah, there are a lot of degrees of freedom for us to actually analyze the data in, in different ways. Yeah, and it's maybe worth pointing out that it's there's no claim that any of these particular paths are the wrong paths. It's just that there's a complete ambiguity in which path is going to be taken or which one could be better than the other. So they're all perfectly valid, whether you exclude response times below 100 milliseconds or 200 milliseconds are both completely valid approaches. So it's not to infer that any researcher has done something wrong by going down a particular path, but just to point out that there's so many different ones um, that when it comes down to this kind of false positive approach, there's also so many that are going to give you a significant result where they should not have been. Mm. Well, they, they do say, you know, because there's so many, if you are able to do so many different kinds of analyses, the probability that at least one of them will be, uh, you know, significant is a lot greater than the false positive rate of 5% because we're doing so many different possible analyses. Um, and they they say that naturally us kind of meandering through this garden of walking path as Gelman and Loken, I think they coined yeah, the phrase, yeah. um, it isn't malicious as such in that a lot of people don't realize that that is inherently problematic. It's more there because there's a lot of ambiguity. We have the self-serving bias of looking back and thinking, oh, that was really clear. Mm. And the incentive structure is that we should find significant results because especially at that time, you could only be published with, you know, surprising and neat and tidy significant results. Well, yeah, so I think like that, that meandering down the looking back thing is, is basically, um, Again, confusing exploratory and conservative research to an extent, mm -hmm. right? Because you're you're kind of, you're kind of you're exploring <laughs> your your garden or, or um, all of those different walking paths um, because you didn't um, specify beforehand where you were going to walk down, um, and then you just selectively 
report mm. the part that was the most successful in the end, in if, if you define success, mm. <laughs> with, with the meaning um, that you have the smallest p-value, which I don't, but yeah. Yeah, well, there is, there, and there are a lot of, you know, both in my research looking at technology use and well-being, there's, I find kind of millions of ways in some large-scale data sets to correlate those two because of the ways that these concepts of technologies and well-being are inherently amb ambiguous and you can define them many different ways. So this kind of in data analysis or in defining variables is a problem and it shows kind of it's very evident there. But I think something we should probably put in the show notes as well is Malka Elson in um, Duisburg. He has a website where he looks at the kind of the measure of aggression they use in, in video game research. So all these studies where they try to prove that if you play violent video games, you become more aggressive. And they use this one aggression task, um, which you could, I think they found 150 ways in which you could analyze this one task because you could look at what was the person's first response, what was the person's last response, what was the first five responses, or take the square root of this and this. And it's just one lab who's analyzed this kind of task I think in a hundred different ways and you can just see that they they do the five ways that they've done previously you don't find something real and they're like oh maybe we'll add in the square root of this time <laughs> or something and it's this amazing visualization and now it's significant yeah. which we knew all along yeah. um so that's a more kind of you know maybe meandering more into this kind of very obvious um, flexibility. But it is, the flexibility is there and the research is published. So, you know, we, it, it's still possible to do that. And yeah, Malta has, has a really nice visualization, which I think um, we'll, we'll enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess, I mean, you know, if, if you were taught to do things that way, why, why would you doubt that that was the mm. right thing to do I guess right? like it, comes, it comes back to teaching in a way I mean like you'd assume that people would at some point also um, continue educating themselves but <laughs> yeah well, but I think yeah. I, I think we you know it, we often talk about the undergrad we teach her as well and they often find that significance is is the key and we don't teach about the garden of forking paths and the importance of pre-registration even now um you know sam's going to supervise some people where you're going to force them to pre-register but i think a lot of them Heart still do suggest <laughs> <laughs> and put them in a room and don't feed them till they <laughs> they put it up on osf no undergrads were harmed in the recording yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Oxford. Um, hopefully the Daily Mail doesn't find this. Oh, God. Okay. Should we quickly go into um, what start talking did. about the study? Yeah. 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 Table three is about my most favorite thing in the whole entire world. Um, so maybe I'll read out the... Oh, the kind of original it. one. No, no or, or like, like, like you could be the, the oh. voice. The, you could, like you could have the um, the one that is uh, printed in in bold. Do you think that will work? I could, I could, I'd like, like, you no, know, let's try. Yeah, let's try. Let's it. try. Let's okay. okay. Using the same method as in study one, we asked twenty. No, actually thirty-four. University of Pennsylvania undergraduates to listen only to either when I'm sixty-four. Or by the Beatles or Kalimba. Or Hot Potato by the Wiggles. 
We conducted our analyses after every session of approximately 10 participants. We did not decide in advance when to terminate data collection. Then, in an ostensibly unrelated task, they indicated only their birthday in months, days and years and how old they felt, how much they would enjoy eating at dinner, eating at a diner, sorry, the square root of 100, their agreement with computers are complicated machines, their father's age, their mother's age, whether they would take advantage of an early bird special, that is a girl of orientation, which of four Canadian quarterbacks they believe won an award, how often they refer to the past as the good old days and their gender. We use father's age to control for variation in baseline age across participants, and Anne Cover revealed the predicted effect. According to their birth dates, People were nearly a year and a half younger after listening to When I'm 64, adjusted mean 20.1 years, rather than to Kalimba, adjusted mean 21.5 years, um, whatever, p-value um, 0.040. Without controlling for father's age, the age difference was smaller and did not reach significance. And the p-value of 0.33. <laughs> That was fun. <laughs> that, 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 that was great. That was awesome. I well, mean, it's a really nice because you, you because could it's so read, ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, but you could read this into so many abstracts yeah. from existing papers, mm. even just for the fact that so many of them don't report the sample size and the main effect size and like all of the important details. Just in the abstract, that you should mm. be able to get an initial impression of. Should I bother reading this in the first place? Mm. I mean, if well, you submitted the, the abstract in full in table three, the reviewers <laughs> would say, why? And I don't why think it's just the this? abstract, it's a study, you know, a lot of these things mm. will probably not be reported in the actual study. You know, if, from, if you just look at the bolded text, it, it, is, it looks like listening to a song which is about being old will make you younger. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Well, actually it's, it's younger. Because it's, you know, it's only because that is so ridiculous that we're like, oh, what is going on here, right? If, if you only read the, the bolded thing, yeah. mm. um, right? which, is, which is why they, they did it that way. Right? It was like yeah. precognition. Yeah, precognition, yeah. exactly. In the show notes, we'll put the precognition paper by them as well, which caused a lot of this as <laughs> um, <laughs> because it showed that people can precognition, precognite, no, they, just, they can just predict the future. Um, yeah. But only women with yeah. a certain age when they're looking at oh, yeah, something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Something like that. So that's yeah. the real life um, yeah, example so of that. Have a finding that violates the laws of physics to tell us that there's a problem. <laughs> should we should we take a short break and then come back and discuss the the solution? The solution. Hi everyone. While well, we take a quick break, I just wanted to tell you about where you can find us. Uh, so we're on Twitter at reproducibility without the final ea because of the character limit. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, of course. Uh, we're now on iTunes, and we're going to be appearing in lots more places pretty soon. Uh, the best way you can support us is to uh, share the feeds on Twitter, write us a review, uh, fire us an email with any comments, critiques and general abuse and we'll take that on board and improve in the future. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Reproducibility. Um, so we just read the best abstract in the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so I think after... Um, 
our little uh, theatrical um, interlude there. <laughs> I think we should have been um, more theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have put on like a, a, a strange voice of someone who's yeah. We'll we'll do it again and we'll we'll upload it as <laughs> as uh, a Happy Friday audio <laughs> <laughs> digital exclusives, but well, podcasts that well. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think having done that, we should um, probably look at the. Um, the actual simulations that they did. Awesome. Um, so table one, you mean? Yes, table one. Um, so just to recap, the research degrees of freedom that they included were um, having two dependent variables, adding 10 more observations per cell. So this was um, optional stopping. Um, controlling for gender or an interaction of gender with treatment and dropping or not dropping one of three conditions and then combinations of all of these three situations so by by two dependent variables they mean like for example outcomes. measuring two outcomes but only yes. reporting one yes yeah. yeah so more or less they did they did almost everything like that in the abstract we read yeah. except i guess they didn't control for gender but they controlled for father's age they had loads of outcome measures um, they did optional stopping because they only reported 20? Oh, no. No, they, they, not, they, no, no, no. They, they, actually, they, they actually say, they add sentence, right? We conducted analyses after every session of a, approximately 10 participants. Yeah. So and I think they, the, the 20, 34 thing is more about the outliers. Mm, okay. Yeah. And then they um, might have dropped one of three conditions. Um, and even even one of each one of those, for example, having two dependent variables, that's so common. Like if I read, you know, you you have a questionnaire and you just put in two different measures of health outcomes or two different measures of decision making. Oh, you have a state and a trait anxiety measure. Yeah. And somehow only one of them becomes the outcome, right? Yeah, and that then in the end you're like, oh, but it was clear that this will only affect this state. Yeah, and of course. Mm. <laughs> so that's really common, and that already inflates the false positive rate to n almost ten percent. So one of every 10 studies, you will have a false positive, which isn't great. Then. But I guess it, it becomes super, super crass when you look at the combinations. Oh yeah, the combinations. Yeah. It's, it's even worth mentioning that these are only four possible researcher mm. degrees of freedom. And in a relatively simple in a relative, design yeah, as well. And they already create this kind of huge number of possible combinations. Um, that lead to this realistically most or you could create a situation where by going down this garden of forking paths that you create a situation where you're always going to find a significant well, result like even here only with these four different if if I do all of these and you know I think in the classic study um, in 2011 you probably were doing that you are more likely to find a significant effect than a non-significant effect because the false positive rate is 60.7. So, so we, we, we created a study where it's, you know, we have maximized our publishability. Hooray! Which is what this is all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess like, in, like given, given the system where that's the, the goal, yeah, we're not that's, to that's quite adaptive. Yeah, exactly. Who cares about knowledge? No, so I, I just mm. want a higher impact factor. Age <laughs> index. That that's a different discussion. Mm. But yeah, no, this it's this is already yeah, it's quite alarming and then it's also considering that it's probably quite conservative. 
I think this yeah. is part of the reason why this paper was so influential because it it demonstrates really clearly in within like a simulated data set so it's not hammering on at a previous study or anything like mm. that it's kind of showing in this purely data driven example this is how bad these practices are that are previously considered to be sort of cursory and mm. this is just standard practice so it's not only saying this is an issue it's saying this is a widespread issue. Well, and it's really bad. Like I, you know, if you bear with me, I'll I'll read out some of the concluding remarks because I think they just hit home. Our goal as scientists is not to publish as many articles as we can, but to discover and disseminate truth. Ooh. Many of us, and this includes the three authors of this article, often lose sight of this goal, yielding to the pressure to do whatever is justifiable to compile a set of studies that we can publish. This is not driven by the willingness to deceive, but by the self-serving interpretation of ambiguity, which enables us to convince ourselves that whichever decisions produce the most publishable outcome must have also been the most appropriate. It's that self-serving. That's the bit that I really like, because mm. it takes, takes the whole emphasis away from creating knowledge to a selfish enterprise of, can I build a career on this? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, they, they, it's just the, you know, that with such simple steps, you can have a false positive rate of 68%. You know, this is something that everybody should be worried about because that, that means that instead of 5% of your studies, maybe 5% being false positives, having, you know, most published results are false situations <laughs> isn't isn't great for for the literature yeah yeah but i guess lots of people are just not aware mm -mm. i think I've, I've kind of stopped trusting most science <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think since i've been involved in this like i used to just go in and be like oh that's really interesting wow and you know you read the abstract and you note it down and you then use it and you talk to people about it and now i'm i'm just a lot more conservative about what what i actually believe is true because i see how much how many decisions people can make to analyze the data and how little ambiguity we do talk about in research um and things are just not that clear <laughs> but well, so you even when you describe a previous study or especially when you see it in the literature it's xyz whatever year found mm. and that that's it it's they found it there's no ambiguity there's no there's very rarely any sort of critical discourse about well maybe actually they tried too many different things maybe mm. there's maybe this is just in a field that is so low powered that we can't get a huge amount of information out of it yeah um we... at noise um, I know that Sophia wanted to talk about optional stopping because I, I know that I found that really difficult, a really difficult kind of concept to start understanding um, why it was bad to just, you know, why is it not, why is it bad that I go in after 20 participants and have a look and if it's significant I just stop because like naturally that saves my time and that saves public resources. That was my, <laughs> my, pe my previous self, just so that well, people aren't. A lot of people are advised to do, especially if you're a junior researcher, right? It's, well, it was almost significant. So, if you, so <laughs> yeah. if you collect another ten people, then it'll probably pass it, and then we've got we've got meaningful result, and we can publish mm. it. And that's actually the advice that you get given or you hear discussed. Mm. Um, but that's wrong. <laughs> but, but that's wrong. Well, yeah. So um, 
I, mean, I think it is. I think it is a difficult concept to wrap your head around, and I'm not sure if I've done it properly yet. But I mean, essentially, um, in non-hypothesis significant testing, significance testing, um, you need to specify a stopping rule. Um, well, that's part of the hypothesis, right? <laughs> You're actually hypothesizing if I have this many people and this is my null, then I'm comparing the data against that, right? It should take into account your sample size. Otherwise, mm. you're testing a different hypothesis than you set out to test in a sort of super technical way. Mm. Well, and I think, yeah, so figure one is a, so figure, sorry, figure two um, is, a, is a really good figure to look at, um, I think, to understand why it's, it's wrong mm. to, um, to do optional stopping. Um, because, right, so, you sorry, I'm being really slow. Um, so, in all of this significance testing, you're looking at the probability of um, observing your data, assuming that the null hypothesis is true. Um, but your data can, can can vary randomly while you're collecting it, um, which Figure Two shows, right? Yeah. Um, so you, well, exactly. So you, so in Daniel Larkin's dance of the p-value. I um, think it's right, not Daniel Larkin. Yeah, he uses it, but, he uses it, but somebody else is. We'll put the YouTube well, video also on the show notes yeah. and Daniel Larkin's course where he uses it. Yeah. But <laughs> it's it's very Shiny interesting. Apple as well to play with. Okay. So you can actually fiddle with the numbers and put in your. So the dance of the p value is more or less showing that um, because null hypothesis significance testing is more or less that uh, is what you should actually do is loads of different studies and that's what is predict that if you do a hundred studies that five percent yeah, would be in the long run right? in the long yeah. run and that simulates that really well that there's just randomness in when things become significant when things don't become significant um so as in this figure too it could be that there is like a major drop in your your p-value between randomly, yeah. yeah between 16 and 26 but just because that is become significant doesn't mean that if you actually get as many people as you actually need from your power analysis, <laughs> that that effect will still be significant or that will still go go down. So I think it also shows the importance of actually being adequately powered and and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I think yeah. So at at those sort of dips, what yeah, that's that's just noise, right? It's not mm -hmm. it's not actually a significant effect. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll put those links up online um, for for people interested because um, it is I think it's just because not hypothetical wrestling it's just so counterintuitive you know you get taught just like oh yeah just look for p value less than zero point zero five and that's significance but what is significance and not hypothesis testing something completely different to what our intuition would believe us to be true yeah which you, which you can see in that like basically no one. Uh, Properly knows what a p value is. Well, mm. no one, but yeah. when well, it's assumed that the effect size is a true thing that's the same for everyone, so therefore, if we don't have a significant p value yet, we will if we have more people. It's just mm. we didn't have enough power. Yes, yeah, so basically, they're, they're, they're assuming <laughs> what they're assuming is that um, that the Bayesian right? Because I guess like right, like so <laughs> uh, that, that 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 you're accumulating evidence, which which is what you do under in a, a Bayesian framework, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, instead of going into the Bayesian discussion, <laughs> yes. maybe we'll, we'll talk a bit about about the solutions. Um, 
because solutions are naturally yes. kind of the key here and and we often talk too much about the problems <laughs> yeah, which are just, which are bad just a, just a little bit yeah um, and these are actually some really basic solutions to this garden of forking paths right I mean they're all the majority of them are about just reporting what you've done so exactly what we're told a methods and results section should be i.e tell us exactly what you've done and report exactly what you what the outcome was yeah. don't tell a story be honest <laughs> instead yeah, I mean, yes. um, so back to transparency essentially yeah definitely i think it's transparency and it's it's really thinking ahead you know it's the, this pre-registration as like a really important concept to to how do you say to really respect that there is a garden of forking paths and that however good of a researcher you are and however good your intentions you will meander through that and looking back you always think this is was the right way to go yeah. um, and that it's extremely hard to decide on the path beforehand but that it just needs to be done and if you can't do it for this complex research question that you want to answer now you probably need to get an easier research question because I found that when I started pre-registering I started seeing that actually there's I can only really specify my analyses really well for analysis for research questions that were just a lot simpler to what I was used to doing yeah. kind of previously and that's exactly why so in, in my lab we've got four undergrad students that are going to be running their dissertation projects next year and that's exactly why we want to encourage them to pre-register because I think especially my experience as an undergraduate was exactly that sort of I want to test this this and this and in reality you end up wanting to test an entire theory that should encompass like a full research line mm -hmm. but you're trying to think about how you can plug in every different element and then oh but I've also found out that this is maybe involved so I'll include a questionnaire for that and it just becomes this un unwieldy thing well you can't help but go down so many different paths well it's like I, I was talking to a PhD student yesterday and they had they just collected a really quite cool data set and not a lot of participants um, and they were kind of saying oh I wanted to kind of look at whether a decrease in this causes like an increase in some like wholly on you know a different variable maybe moderated by this and that but I don't know how to test it because I'm missing these measures at certain time points and without going into details it was more or less a problem is that there were no research questions that they had thought of before like there were no yes or no it was like it was very it, it is anyways an explorational study but I think if they would have actually decided on these are like 10 research questions with like a very clear outcome and a very clear statistical test, you wouldn't be sitting there. How many of us have previously sat in front of data that we have collected and then only thought, okay, and how am I going to analyze this? <laughs> oh, it's at least a couple of studies from my depot, which is exactly why I'm so annoyed that I didn't know about all of this earlier and really want to help. Mm. Well, that's the point of the podcast as well, right? Is to spread this knowledge to people as early as humanly possible. Yeah. So you... Um, <laughs> You're going to kindergarten today. <laughs> Open science. Do things right. I think they understand it, though. Yeah, it's like exactly. it's, it's, yes. the un, it's what we start doing in, yeah, in an undergrad. Said, I think you could make a scientific study looking at brainwashing. 
through <laughs> through through the the undergraduate process at least here in the UK. Um, well, I guess like right, like the like the less invested, I guess you are in um, in things staying the the way that they were. The more mm. open you are to to changing things to mm. for the better, right? And I think it's it's it's. So no, I was like, at some point, like, if you if you've already had your whole career, mm. and then you you get some new information, um, something that you haven't had considered before, and you then look at your entire life's work and go, this is useless, right? That that's mm. really really harsh. Yeah, and I think, and you know, I think it's not just your life work; is you're supporting postdocs, you're supporting, yeah. you know, people with families, people with career ambitions um, and naturally if you have like branded your lab that you find the effect X if you stop finding it you know it's, it's not just bad for you it's bad for a lot of people but I think what this paper shows is that it's it's not like a small like doing doing these kind of things that we often see as as we say we don't say academic malpractice we say what is the word Questionable research. Questionable research practices. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're just yeah. they're just a bit questionable. No, no, they're not a bit questionable. They're wrong. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, but the thing is, right? So in in a, in a system where you don't make it clear that, um, like wh whether you've engaged in any of these things, you mm. can't like right. Th th there's just mm. a lot of gray area. Mm. And again, so if you, um, well, yeah, so um, actually, um, I I just pointed wrote, I just yes. pointed to a quote that we wrote down previously because yes. I really <laughs> like it. Perfect. I think I wanted, I think I wanted to start with this even though that I just uh, didn't. <laughs> well, we, we um, should include it in but the podcast. For so, um, yeah. So um, the authors of this paper that we're looking at right now um, wrote a follow-up paper that came out um, earlier this year, um, where we'll they put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so I think it's false positive citations, um, and what they say is um, everyone knew it was wrong, but they thought it was wrong the way it was wrong to jaywalk. We decided to write false positive psychology when simulations revealed it was wrong the way it's wrong to rob a bank. Um, I think we might have actually mentioned this in the previous one as well, but I'm not sure if we did that while we were recording or not. <laughs> um, but yes, I think on that note, um, we should probably end this uh, podcast before um, we ramble on for too long. Yep. Um, so see you next week. See you next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>